This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. I'm your host, Bill Ayers, and I'm here, as always, with Malik Alim, producer, engineer, consultant, and tutor. That was the magnificent freedom fighter and guitar gorilla Tom Morello getting us started. Tom's one of those generous souls and popular troubadours who shows up wherever and whenever people are in motion, releasing their energies and imaginations toward peace, justice, and freedom. We gather here for our seminar on freedom, and regular listeners know that the title, Under the Tree, is a metaphor meant to signal that when the topic is liberation, the classroom can be a park or a house of worship, a storefront or the street, a distribution or exchange site for mutual aid, or a factory floor, a people's assembly, or a demonstration. Anywhere that we come together and choose to unlock our collective wisdom and pose the fundamental questions once more. Who are we? How did we get here? Where do we want to go? What is to be done? Those questions transform our gathering together into a classroom without walls. The whole city or our village, our community or our school, this intentional community is an underground university, a fugitive space, an insurgent academy. What binds us together is a commitment to look at the world as if it could be otherwise. We open each episode with a poem, our common practice, and our ritual announcement that seminar is in session. It's a time of reflection, a moment of zen. Today's poem was written by the dazzling and mighty June Jordan, who passed on in 2002. And the poem is entitled, Calling on All Silent Minorities, read by Malik Alim. Hey, come on, come out wherever you are. We need to have this meeting at this tree. Ain't even been planted yet. Thank you, June Jordan. Thank you, Malik Aleem. Our second regular feature is a free write, a time to enable surprising new winds to gather strength in our minds and in our hearts, and then to unleash them to run wild. Here you can pause the podcast for just a few moments. Again, I'll remind you that you can pause the podcast for as long as you like. It's not going anywhere. So pause here if you like and write fiercely, no need for edits, in response to this prompt. Make a list of 10 commitments that you'll try to carry out with you into your work and into your actions and into your personal space every day. Write it out on a single sheet of paper or a three by five card that you can tape to the bathroom mirror and consult each morning as a guide and a roadmap. Write out your 10 commitments. Start writing. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews, and follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Welcome back. Before we get to our guest today, I want Malik Alim to offer up a few of his thoughts on the national madness we've just endured, something he and I, like many of you, have been talking over, analyzing, and endlessly dissecting every day. These are some of Malik's thoughts. Let's just be honest with ourselves for a moment. What does it mean to be an American right now? How does it feel? 
How is it that the majority of Americans want universal health care, but neither of the candidates we had to choose from in this election were willing to give it to us? How does it land on you that not even an act of God in the form of a pandemic could compel our democratically elected representative government to make health care a right for its people? Why do 80% of people live paycheck to paycheck in the richest country in the world? How is it even possible? How could tens of millions of those same paycheck to paycheck people lose their jobs during a pandemic and not be given more than a few weeks of payments from their government to survive? When I look at the election results, not just from this year, but going back almost a century, one thing is clear to me. We don't live in a red or blue country. Our elections are usually pretty competitive between Democrats and Republicans, which means that nearly half of the electorate begrudgingly consents to be governed by values they don't agree with every cycle. The United States of America is purple. We are bruised and battered as a nation every election cycle when we're told we must choose the lesser of two evils and that supporting a third party candidate is a waste of a vote. Every time we accept that notion, we renew our own political contusions and resign ourselves to at least four more years of misrepresentative leadership. Just like many of us have learned to reject binaries in the context of gender expression or sexual identity, we need to embrace the simple truth that our political identities also fall somewhere on a spectrum. The last time a third party candidate won a significant percentage of the electorate was in 1992 when Ross Perot took 18% of the popular vote as an independent. Bill Clinton won that election by 11 percentage points over George Bush. Perot was crucified by the media and the Republican establishment for splitting the conservative vote, and we the people haven't had the courage to get behind a third-party candidate since. There are plenty of other reasons as well, including the massive increase of money being dumped into political campaigns over the last few decades and the stagnant cowardice of party loyalists who choose to grovel for cabinet appointments rather than stand up for the values they believe in. The largest block of the electorate in this country are non-voters, people who are of age and unrestricted yet choose not to participate in the process, and I do not blame them. They are disenchanted, they've been ignored, and they refuse to participate in the system that will make them choose between two people who simply do not and will not represent their interests. We need a political party that is truly of the people and for the people in this country. We need to stop looking to the elephants and the asses for salvation. It's now time for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, pronounced variously as a question mark, an exclamation point, or a simple sigh. Ah. It's where we talk to folks who can help us think more deeply about this political moment, about where we are on the clock of the universe, about what is to be done or what the known demands of us now. We look at the circumstances of our lives, release our most liberated imaginations, and ask ourselves not just what's going on, but also how our community, our city, and our world might be otherwise. It's a great honor for me to be joined today under the tree by Aislinn Pulley, co-executive director of the Chicago Torture Justice Center and founder and lead organizer with Black Lives Matter Chicago. 
Aislinn Pulley is an organizer with We Charge Genocide, a founding member of Inside Arts, a cultural nonprofit that deploys art in the service of social change, as well as Visibility Now, a young woman's performance ensemble dedicated to ending sexual assault. She's also a member of the performance ensemble End of the Ladder and the creator of the urban youth magazine Underground Philosophy. And if you can't tell from all that, she's a person of enormous energy, all the right instincts of an organizer and activist. And I think mixed in there is a lot of magic. So Aislin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Such an honor to be a part of this. Okay, I, I, I want to begin by just noting that... Uh, uh, I know the fever hasn't quite broken yet, but the quadrennial carnival known as our national election is packing up and leaving town and not a moment too soon. How are you and your closest comrades seeing and naming this political moment? First, I, I just want to shout out that word quadrennial. That is a word to remember. That's a great word. Um, I think... You know, I, I, I've, I've been having some conversations with some close comrades ar around trying to really decipher this moment because it in many ways is so unprecedented um, as far as recent memory. Um, and so it's difficult to be able, you know, for, for those of us who've been around um, for as long as, you know, I've been around to, to pinpoint a similar time just within our lifetimes that we can look to where, where the dynamics have produced the type of polarization that we're seeing, the type of violence, the type of proto-fascism on the streets, as well as the absence of seemingly, um, a left capable of, of, of really being a force. Uh, a pull of opposition um, in an organized way against the the duopoly of the Democrats and the and the Republicans, um, and and that absence right now feels very poignant um, because of the increasing danger of the proto fascism represented by Trump, um, and then the complete, in my opinion pathetic acquiescence of the Democrats toward trying to pacify or um, recruit them from Trump <laughs> in, in some bizarre way. Um, but of course, it's, I mean, I'm saying it's bizarre. It's not really bizarre. It's, it's logical. It's what they do. So um, in many respects, you know, it, it, it feels like a terrain that, um, that is, that is unknown because of, because that gap is so pronounced in this moment. Mm -hmm. Well, you used the word duopoly. So in some sense, it's no surprise that the Democrats don't have an answer for you. I mean, it really is. They, you have the Republicans and the Democrats. And I use the, the wonderful word quadrennial <laughs> carnival. But what I, what I, partly mean by that is it does seem to me that every four years, the carnival comes to town, it generates a tremendous amount of noise and light and heat, and everyone gets sucked into it. Now, I understand this year more than most years, people felt like we must defeat the fascists, and I get that. But it's also true that if all the energy and light gets sucked into that 
carnival, then we lose our bearings in terms of our organizing on the ground. And one of the things I've admired about you for a long, long time is you're the quintessential organizer on the ground. So that's partly where I'm going is wanting to, to know now that we got to get back to work, the carnival left, uh, the duopoly is doing its thing. What is our job? What are we going to do? Continue organizing for sure. And that's the easy, concise answer. But I also think that in, in, in some respects, you know, the framing of we have to defeat fascism by voting in Biden um, is so dangerous because the, Democrat, the Democrats aren't going to defeat fascism. They are incapable of, they are a proponent of fascism. Um, and so in many ways, it's, you know, it certainly getting Trump out of office means hopefully that we can estimate that there will be some lives saved, that there won't be as many people killed by the death-making machine of this country. Um, but assuredly, the death-making machine of this country is preserved and is going to continue functioning under Biden. The question is, will he kill as many people? Um, so the, the march toward fascism, I think, in, in my opinion, has not been defeated yet. I think it's very naive and potentially dangerous to think that merely an electoral defeat somehow has defeated this right-wing um, trend toward, toward fascism, um, that, that Trump certainly is a crystallizing you know, encapsulation of, but, you know, to, to, to abscond the Democrats of any culpability in that is just a lie, in my opinion. So I think, um, I think the Biden, I think that's partly what worries me about the Biden-Harris presidency, um, is that there will be some people who they do believe that rhetoric, they buy into the, the you know, the mythos of the bi-party system, um, and, and that's dangerous for us working on the ground because police are going to continue to kill. People are going to continue to be locked up into this, you know, mass incarceration system. Um, the, the, the cages at the borders maybe will be lessened in numer you know, in number. Hopefully that's true, but they're not going to go away. Biden has not said he's going to get rid of them, you know. Sure. So, so in a sense, it's it's really still up to us. And and sometimes I think a problem that the left uh, has is spending too much time time and energy looking at the sites of power we have no access to, like the White House and the medieval auction block called the Congress, and too little time looking at the sites of power we have absolute access to, the community, the workplace, the school, the classroom. Yeah. And one of the things I've always admired about your work is, and about Black Lives Matter Chicago, is that, for example, the election between the district attorney, uh, Anita Alvarez, and the pr partially progressive Kim Fox, you all didn't endorse a candidate. You built a campaign called Goodbye Anita mm -hmm. or Bye Anita. And you won, but without ever saying, oh, we're throwing our chips in with the new mm -hmm. DA. You simply drove that person out and you did it by organizing from the bottom up. That's what impressed me. And that's what I'm thinking, you know, 
perhaps that's a model for what, where we need to go now. Rather than worrying, what will Biden do? What are we building? What are we demanding? What are we certain of? And so I'd be interested in your take on things like the the mainstream Democrats freaking out now about uh, about the Progressive Caucus and freaking out about the slogan "Defund the Police" or or reparations. I'd be interested in you talking about how you imagine those campaigns building from below. You know, I just think it's just they're they're just they're so bankrupt in 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 so many ways. The Democrats um, and. You know, there are so many, just from a PR perspective, like from a capitalist PR perspective, there were so many ways they could have spun, you know, beating Trump. Um, and and they chose that. <laughs> they chose to attack the movement. They chose mm. to attack defunds, mm. um, which just shows how, you know, it, 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 that they 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 loathe. They loathe the very people that got them elected. Unfortunately, that unfortunately that's always has been true, um, but becomes even more crystallized in this moment uh, because there were so many people who participated in these marches and who also participated in marches, you know, in, in protest of Trump in hopes that Biden and you know et cetera would be some some you know better whatever. Um, so it's it's not surprising to me. It's of course they would, right? They the Democrats the the they're they've been the machine here in Chicago for ever. They conspired to assassinate Chairman Fred. You know they they have blood on their hands. Um, the 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 movement work. What what I'm more concerned with is is. Now that the distraction of the election, the spectacle of the national election is over, we can get back to work um, building a movement that is not reliant on the electoral cycle, um, because this is a protracted struggle. This is a long-term struggle. This is a fight to upend this entire system, mm. um, including, you know, it, it, including all the Democrats that are complicit in it, mm -hmm. um, which is all of them. Um, so, you know, that, that's the hard work and the long-term work. And in my opinion, that's, that's the real work. Yeah. Say, say more, a bit more about that, especially explain to listeners what defund the police actually means, as opposed to what the right wing and in many ways, the establishment Democrats have pretended that it means. What does it mean to defund the police in a place like Chicago? So Chicago has the most police per 100,000 people in the country, which in essence, and you know, in a nutshell means that Chicago has the most police of any other big city. Um, this is a city that is constantly in the media um, uh, uh, around concerns of gun violence um, and is, has been used as a talking point by many pundits. Um, and, but the fact that Chicago has, is, is, has the most police per any other big city and yet continues to have such, um, high numbers of, of gun violence is the perfect example to prove that policing does not prevent gun violence. It has absolutely no relationship toward eradicating the conditions of poverty that create intracommunal violence. 
And so the real issue is what we can look to Chicago um, uh, as being a, an example of is the fact that the the um, the insistence on prioritizing policing and policing budgets and, and increasing policing budgets, which in Chicago has happened consistently since I think 1967, um, that that has that has happened as a direct result of the choice to then abandon communities. So, you know, the the segregation that exists in Chicago um, is replicated in every aspect of life. So we have hyper-racialized segregation. That also means that the South and the West Sides also are healthcare deserts, healthcare apartheid, pharmacy apartheid, education apartheid. And so all of those things have not been funded because of policing, because the city has decided to uh, militarize our communities in order to suppress us um, instead of providing us with what we actually need in order to live dignified lives. And what we need to live dignified lives is what everyone needs to live dignified lives, which adequate housing, adequate um, systems of health care, adequate access to food, adequate access to education, adequate access to jobs. And so those are the things that defunding police is about. It's about saying that this political project of militarizing ourselves, of mi militarizing the population um, in, in order to deprive us has to end. And that we want to create a society where all of us can live fully dignified lives. You know, one of the things, again, going back to how impressed I've been with Black Lives Matter Chicago, when the crisis hit with, with uh, uh, the murder of George Floyd, when the crisis hit uh, with the murder of Breonna Taylor and so on, the narrative that came out almost immediately was not only Black Lives Matter, it was also defund the police, reparations, and that's based on five or more years of organizing on the ground. So I know you were one of the people who went to Ferguson. I think that's how you first uh, got involved in Black Lives Matter Chicago. I may be wrong. Um, yeah, that's right. But you were part of the freedom freedom contingent that went down to Ferguson when Mike Brown was murdered and left laying in the street and, and came back and started organizing in a very grassy grassroots level so that when the crisis came, you all had already created the narrative that became the leading narrative. And now it's being chipped away. But I hear you saying once again, this is what defund the police means. It's a it's an ethical way of imagining budgeting instead of everything to the cops and surveillance and incarceration. Let's have mental health. Let's have uh, housing. Let's have jobs and so on. I mean, that that's pretty much what you're saying. Right. And, and what you've been yeah. saying for years and years. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, because the 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 narrative around why we have policing um, is a, is a pure creation. It's a fiction um, that we have policing um, in order to quote unquote serve and protect, which actually came out of a marketing campaign in the fifties. Mm. Um, all of those things were created. The narrative that police respond and reduce crime is has never been um, crime, which is also just a very highly charged uh, con concept in and of itself. Um, it has never, there's never been statistics to, to prove that that's true because the relationship between, you know, what is considered crime is entirely a result of 
the um, gap between the, the haves and the have-nots is, is a result of lack of resources, etc. You know, all those sociological facts, right? That 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 um, are, are 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 accepted the world over. So the narrative of 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 why we have policing um, has has been a hard one. Um, um, fight that has been replicated over the last century, um, and especially over the last 40 years that has been, um, um, played out on countless TV shows, countless movies, you know, pr- creating this mythology of somehow the police are, you know, the, the, the arbiters of safety. None, and there's no, there are no, there's no data to support that. We know the lived reality. And so the fight is really to, unearth that and to chip away at this this lie um, and to and to show this is actually the truth. These are the real facts here. And the true function of policing is, is not to do any of those things, but to suppress populations in, in the interests of, you know, who is in power. You know, I mentioned earlier that you are the co-executive director of the Chicago Torture Justice Center. And well, you and I know what that is and where it came from. Would you speak a minute about um, the Chicago torture victory, which I think is another model for the country of reparations in a concrete sense of a, com- a community campaign, a bottoms up campaign that ultimately resulted in, in power having to concede something? Say a bit about about the uh, John Burge campaign and how it led to this uh this institution, the Chicago Torture Justice Center. Yeah. Um, so the Chicago Torture Justice Center was born out of the 2015 ordinance for um, reparations uh, for survivors of police torture. And that was unanimously voted in by city council on, I think it was May 6, 2015. Um, and that was a, a culmination of over three decades of fighting by torture survivors. And, and what I mean by that is that in Chicago, the former uh, Chicago police commander named John Burge, who returned from the Korean War and the Vietnam War, where he learned what is called an advanced interrogation techniques um, and used those, those terror, torture techniques on the population in Chicago, and, and predominantly on the Black population in Chicago, um, he was he was um, then promoted to commander, um, and promoted several times within, and then created um, torture rings, which consisted of him and other officers that engaged in um, uh, torturing of on a conservative number. Um, and, and this number is based on uh, the, the the accounts that the city has confirmed, which is 120, but we know the real number is much larger than that, um, of predominantly Black men, um, but not exclusively. There are women survivors as well, Latinx survivors, as well as white survivors. Um, and this torture included um, a, a, a electric shocks to the body, using cattle prods on genitals, cigarette burns, Russian roulette beatings, etc. Um, and this happened in, uh, in the through, began in the seventies and then ended in nineteen ninety one when Burge was finally fired as a result of the numerous complaints. Um, 
slowly the the testimonies of of survivors who were then incarcerated because these torture these torture techniques elicited confessions were finally beginning to be allowed in court testimony slowly and it took decades for this to be accepted in court after people were marching in the streets for years and then this this kind of crystallized in the early 2000s when the death row 10 um, were exonerated, who were tortured by Burge, um, and were exonerated based on DNA evidence because that technology finally was able to be used in that way, um, which then forced a political crisis among the electorate in, in Illinois, which inevitably resulted in the abolition of the death penalty. Um, then in, in 20, I think it was 2011, John Burge was brought to trial um, uh, through federal uh, crimes of obstruction of justice and um, perjury. The statute of limitations had expired on torture. Um, he was found guilty and was sentenced to four years. He did about two and a half years. Survivors felt that that was a slap in the face of any concept of justice. And this is after decades and decades of fighting and trying to get him tried. And so what they came up with was a, an ordinance that reimagined what justice can be. And it was a holistic ordinance that provided some sm a small monetary compensation, but also the creation of a center located on the South side to treat the, the consequences of the torture, the trauma, that not only survivors experience, but that their families, community members, and anyone impacted by policing experience. And that's what created the Chicago Torture Justice Center. And the reparations ordinance also called for the teaching of, of the Chicago police torture in all Chicago public schools, as well as a public memorial. It's an amazing, breathtaking victory. And I'm so glad that you're there helping to lead it this uh, this far forward. But when you think about it, when we talk about reparations, it can sound so lofty, but what you all won in Chicago was reparations for real in the sense that there was inadequate for sure, but there was monetary compensation, there was an, an artistic um, representation of the torture, there's curriculum in the schools, there's tuition for the kids, uh, for the guys themselves, but also for the kids and grandkids uh, to community colleges. And there was a public apology by the city. I mean, that's that's pretty astonishing when you think about it. And we haven't done any of that nationally. So bit by bit, and I feel like uh, Chicago organizers are a model for, for all of us uh, at how that can happen. So I really admire that effort. There have been so many others. Um, and that's why I think, given where we are, uh, imagining what are the demands we're going to make now? Where are we going now? And that's why things like explaining defund the police, not just as a slogan, but as a concrete manifestation of uh, of a step toward justice, not justice itself, but a step toward justice. And I, I want to, if I could, I want to ask you a little bit more about your background, because you've been involved in so many of these struggles. You've been central to so many of these struggles, but you also come out of a political family. Is that true? Yeah. You want to say a word about that? Because I, I only learned about this recently. So my dad... Um... Both my parents have been involved in organizing my entire life. So I grew up um, as a child, pr probably like your kids, <laughs> going to protests, sitting in meetings, hearing these big words like imperialism, you know, learning about liberation fights all across the world. 
Um, and so, you know, my mom, for example, during the, the fight to save the mental health care clinics, um, was one of the, um, elders who, um, participated in the protest to save the Woodlawn mental health clinic and was arrested. I think there were about seven of them, um, uh, seniors who were arrested and that, and my mom called me from, from jail, like seven in the morning. Um, so like she, she, her, her activism continues to this day. My father, however, was, um, basically drafted into the Vietnam War. What happened was he was involved in some, basically some like kind of light organizing in his high school. Um, they called him a black militant and the judge said, you can either go to prison or you can go to the army. And so he said, well, I'll go to the army. Got to Fort Jackson and began, um, uh, just conversing with some of the other GIs there, they they started having rallies and, and and workshops, listening to Malcolm X tapes and other tapes, and talking about um, how you know they weren't going to fight for for U.S. imperialism, and started organizing against the war in Vietnam. They created a newsletter that they mailed across to bases all over the country and in Vietnam, you know, all over the world, um, and then the brass. Um, arrested them. And there were, there, they were called the Fort Jackson Eight. Um, there were originally nine of them who were arrested. One ended up being a, a, uh, a spy, a, you know, part of the, part of the government. Um, so they were then incarcerated and, and a fight was waged to free them. Um, that fight was successful. And so they were released. And originally, my dad was released with dishonorable discharge, but then they were able to organize and fight that to get that reversed, because there's a lot of consequences that come when you get a dishonorable discharge. So um, he was a GI. They formed a group. They were called GIs Against the War and um, traveled all across the world, um, uh, organizing other GIs. Um, who were active as well as those who had come home um, and was an active um, organizer against the war in Vietnam. I got to tell you, not only do I salute you, but I salute your parents, not only for raising you, but for being who they are. I was involved in the Fort Jackson uh, defense. Um, no way. And, uh, yeah. And my brother, my younger brother, who was also drafted, and he, when we went underground, he deserted. Um, he, he, he had been court-martialed for organizing uh, at the fort, at the basic training. And when we went underground, he deserted and he was underground with me for 11 years. And he came back under Jimmy Carter's wow. amnesty. But it's just interesting because, you know, we know each other, you know, from the movement, but but now it turns out we're practically related. So it's really, it's wow. great. That is it's amazing. Um, <laughs> there's one other thing I would love for you to say a word about, because I, while I don't, I don't, I know your activism, I know your organizing, but you're also involved in the arts. You're involved in theater, you're involved in ensembles. Tell tell us a little bit about about that aspect of your of your work and of your life. Yeah. Um you know, it's so interesting that so many of the organizers that I really like love, I end up finding out that they also are somehow a creative person as well. I mean, everyone really is, but that they're, you know, exploring that side of them, um, which I find really interesting. So, yeah, I, I was very fortunate that, you know, my mom used to be an actress. 
So um, I was always encouraged from a very young age to participate in um, all kinds of artistic things, dance classes, acting classes, every, everything like that. Um, and for me, um, you know, I was able to find a community of artists who um, I think for me helped make sense of, of the politics you know, of radical politics in a very real way and helping to open up opportunities to expand imagination. And so I was very, at a, at a very young age, exposed to theater of the oppressed um, and Augusto Boalian techniques of kind of practicing for revolution using theater. Um, and so for me, that like combination of, of politics and art has, has been such a central component to like how I envision organizing um, and it, it has always felt difficult to separate it because it's so much of my being. Um, so art has art and, 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 and even when I was in high school, um, when they asked, what did you want to be when you grow up? I said, I wanted to be an artist and an organizer. <laughs> there you go. And you did I, it. I was very frustrated though, because I, I couldn't figure out like, well, what do you do when you want to be that? Like, what does that mean for college? So I never knew what to study. But yeah, I mean, it's been, it is, it, it feels very much a part of my DNA. You know, I, I think it's so important. And you say a lot of the folks you admire the most combined the politics with creative endeavors. And that's been my experience, too. I think that sometimes if, if, if your politics is one of, uh, of kind of didactic, earnestness, you can sometimes lose your way. There's something about the creative spirit and the imagination, which is very much part of what we're going for. I mean, if we want to live in a world different than the world we've inherited, we have to imagine a different world. And the arts help us do that. It's not just the arts as kind of pretty decorations. It's the arts of asking ourselves, what else? What else could be? What can we imagine? What's over the next horizon? And I, I really salute that as well. I admire it very much. Um, for those who don't know, Augusto Boal, we've talked about Paulo Freire on this podcast many times, but Augusto Boal was Freire's good collaborator in Brazil. And he wrote a book, he wrote, a, he developed a project called Theater of the Oppressed. Um, and it's like Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Very important. And I urge people to look it up. And, and that can go on to our book of books, our ongoing reading list of uh, what folks are reading to learn about freedom. Um, well, uh, Aislinn, I don't want to keep you any longer, but I have to tell you, this has been an absolute treat for me having you here, being in conversation with you. You have always inspired me, and I expect you to keep doing so. And Remember, we, we elders are no longer in a position to give advice to the young. We're getting advice from you. So you tell me when you need support, when you need us, uh, we'll be wherever you need us, in the street, uh, in the picket line, or on the page. But let us know. Thank you. It's such an honor to be a part of this. And I'm just so thrilled to know this backstory relationship. Yeah. That's so amazing. So I'm, I'm just thankful. Tell the family and the comrades I say hello and sending love. I will, absolutely. Uh -huh. 
Before we leave, I have a homework assignment. It's really to continue the free write. Think hard about the commitments you carry with you. If you're a teacher, into the classroom. If you're a nurse, into the hospital. If you're a community organizer, into the community. But for each of us, what are the commitments we take into our personal life and our personal space? Write them down, think about them, reflect on them, send them to us if you'd like. Don't forget to rate, review, but most importantly, subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks to friends and comrades from the brilliant podcast Ergo, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger, producers and mentors, and to Malika Lean, valued and irreplaceable comrade in arms. Our music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. Thanks for being here. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time. Black for the skin, green for the land, red for the blood, steady freedom's hand.